Hello and welcome to the Me and My Golf podcast. We're your hosts and PGA coaches, Andy Proudman and Piers Ward. And these podcasts are really about one thing, making you better. Yes, on here we'll be sharing our own experiences and knowledge as players and coaches, as well as bringing to you special guests to help your game. Let's get into today's podcast and help you take charge of your game. Hi everybody, thank you for tuning in. Welcome to this week's episode. We have another amazing guest on today. We have three-time European Tour winner, an amazing golfer and also amazing TV presenter now who works on Sky Sports, Nick Doherty. Now, Nick had an amazing childhood growing up. He was a fantastic junior coming up the ranks and obviously got to the European Tour, had an amazing career getting to world number 46 in 2008. He was leading the US Open after the first round at Oakmont as well in 2007. And in today's podcast, we really dive deep into his career, some of the highs and the lows, what made him so successful. He talks about his dad, how his dad had a huge influence on his belief growing up. We talk about coaching, how the tours changed between now and how it was when he was back on tour. Some great stories in this podcast. And he then talks about how his new journey, I suppose, his new career, which is broadcasting on Sky Sports. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Great guy, Nick is, and lots of experience, lots of knowledge to share with you guys. So we hope you enjoy. Nick, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Uh, I'm doing really well, thanks. All things considered. Um, Trying to find some space at home, enjoying the family more than I'd normally get to see them, obviously, with what, well, you same for you guys, what we normally do. We're on the road a lot. Other than that, that, that's the end of the good news, though, I'm afraid, mate. That's all there is. <laughs> yeah, that's all I got. That's all, all I got. got. I've tried. I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been meditating on it a lot. And that's all I've got. <laughs> the, me and Pierce were chatting before, the, before we came on the podcast, and we were just talking about the industry and, and how, how good the golf industry is, really, how, how great of a business it is and how you travel all over the world. We tend to travel a lot as well and, and how connected and such a small community community is no matter where you go you know somebody who, who knows somebody and I think I first met you Nick um you probably won't remember this is a, a few years back at the um Turkish Airlines Open and you mm. I think you were you must have been there doing some sky stuff and it was at the media tent and just chatting to you then and uh it's just funny how golf connects a lot of people I think and you, you know you get to mix and meet so many interesting characters and um it's great to have you on today to talk about you know your career and uh I'm sure the listeners are going to love, love what you've got to say as well. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, it is a great community and you, you sense it, don't you, in times like this. I mean, it's a horrible time and, and much more important than anything we do with regards to our sport that we love. Um, but golf is a great vehicle in being able to pull people together. We know it does that when we're playing normally, but in these circumstances, the stuff online has been really wholesome. And, and you know, doing the stuff like, well, we were part of one the other day, both of you guys, we, we've done stuff together. Um people are liking being able to have that little part of their life. They can't have it as they usually have it. We're not going down the club. We're not playing 18 holes. We're not going in the clubhouse after. We're not socializing with our pals or playing in comps, but we're still a community um, and we can still do bits and bobs at home together. But more importantly, just stay in touch, stay in touch, talk golf, share our love of the game. And it gives us something. And the brain is a bit for me that's quite scary at the moment. That idleness is dangerous, I think, for so many, as we know, with mental health issues. Um, this is a dangerous environment. The physical stuff we know about, we need to get that exercise, but the brain needs to keep ticking over and friendships and they shine through to help in these times, I think. They do. Sure yeah. do. They do. Well, I think a lot of people you a lot of people know you now from, from your broadcasting stuff on Sky Sports, but you weren't a bad player 
as well. I mean, for the guys who are listening to this, maybe across the pond who don't necessarily know that much about you, just give us a quick brief history of your golfing career that sort of brought you up to where you are today. And then we'll sort of dive a little bit deeper into it. Sure. Uh, well, I got on tour when I was 19 years of age. I, I won a lot as an amateur. Um, my uh, All finished up the last event I ever played the week before I turned pro was the Walker Cup, where if it's for the um, guys across the pond, then uh, they'll enjoy the fact we beat you 159 uh, on US soil. It was very pleasurable. We had a, quite a good team. Luke was in at GMAC. It was a really strong team. Um, and then I turned pro. I was rookie of the year in my first year on tour. Um, probably partied a little bit too hard for a few years, sort of took a bit of a nosedive with my career um, and then got all my stuff back in order. I won at the age of uh, 22 for the first time in Singapore, holding off Monty and Thomas Bjorn. Then I won at the Home of the Golf, Home of Golf two years later, which is 2007. That was my best year on tour. That was when I made my probably my best name for myself in the States in terms of leading the US Open, yeah. finished seventh in the yeah, end. Page Black, yeah. Where I played, yeah. Uh, no, that was actually Oakmont, that one. Sorry, my bad, my bad, yeah. Oakmont. Uh, and then we played with Tiger, and then 09 was my last win uh, in uh, in Germany, the BMW, BMW International Open. After that, I've I've chosen to try and forget most of it. To be honest, <laughs> I, I think I lost my card, but it just it's hard to remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you just you just be selective, selective on that, selective. <laughs> so, as a player, then Nick, what would you say that you, what were your strengths on and off the golf course that enabled you to be successful? Um, I had a great belief in myself and I think that was the way I was brought up my dad was very very tough on me um, but at the same time it, it it helped me learn a resilience uh, and create a resilience in my character that I think helped me in good stead as I went along um, even when things wouldn't go right for me in those days I, I used to believe that it would be because there's a greater purpose to it um, which is a very weird egotistical way to think but I was the naivety was bliss at the time uh, I really believed I was bulletproof Honestly, when, and I think that's why the party, and I really believed I could compete and beat these guys going out and getting in at four in the morning and then pitching up at the course. I'm like, right, 68 or seven today. Mm, I am a little bit hungover. Let's just go for 68. Um, and uh, to be honest, that was a weakness in terms of I was I was thrown away. The, I needed every little inch you can get out there on tour because they're really, really good. Um, but the belief was a massive asset. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that egotistical side of it, were, in the end, would be my undoing as well uh, and coming to the realization of where I was and when it would all go wrong. But I think I was very tough mentally. I think when push came to shove, the bigger the challenge, the better I perform. So it's no surprise to me that my best results were with strong players. Like when I won in Singapore, Monty was European number one that year, um, as he was many years. Mm-hmm. But uh, holding off Thomas and, and Monty for the last two days, you know, I beat in the end one by five. Um, and then it, winning at the home of golf, old enough Justin Rose when he was the number one, and Ernie Els as well down the stretch. Got, got close, well, he actually caught me at one stage. Uh, and then Langer and Goosen in my last win. But um, when you you put me at the Austrian Open, with all due respect to the Austrian Open, when I was one of the headline acts, probably going home on Friday night. Yeah. I just found it really hard. I lo- like the idea of you're not supposed to beat them. It really ticked the box for me. I always seem to bring my best performances out, which is why I always loved the US Open as well. It's um, arguably my strongest performing major, even though it doesn't suit my game at all. I was never a very straight driver. Um, but it's the one that I just I just loved because it was just so brutal and hard. And I think there's that toughness that I always enjoy. And of course, I grew up with it because of how my dad was with me. And it's interesting, actually, Nick, because the way you're talking now as well, when I chatted to you at the Turkish Airlines, and this is probably... Oh, five or six years ago this is um 
I think I was just asking you about your game and stuff like that. And you said, yeah, I've, I've got my challenge tour card, but I'm just really, I'm just not interested. And maybe because mm. of obviously what you're saying there is you needed that challenge. You needed to be amongst the big boys to get you going. Getting back on the challenge tour was like, well, there's no motivation there, is there? Well, I think the hard thing for me, Andy, was that I'd never been on it. Yeah. So, you know, I turned pro after the Walker Cup on a high. Luke Donnell and I, like, neck and neck in terms of who was better in the world's eyes. We all know who eventually that ended up being. But um, but I, that's where I lived. That's where I was going to live. And I was going to be a special player that was winning loads of tournaments, play Ryder Cups, do all this. Um, and I'd never even touched the Challenge Tour. I went to Q score. I thought, oh, my God, this is just a breeze straight through here. And I did because it's self-fulfilling, isn't it? And um, I came third and I played played okay. You know, won stage one, didn't play good. I played awful at stage two, but cruised through. And final stage came third. And it was just the easiest three weeks of my life. I don't know all this big fusses. I can promise you, <laughs> when you go back, having having failed it, I'm being in a different headspace as I got older. Very different prospects. All you can see are Nick Faldo's around you. I mean, that, that they were just all too good. And um, for me, going back down to the Challenge Tour, the hardest thing, and this is, you know, that ego side, I really is the ego doesn't like that as no. much as I crave the praise and the um, adulation uh, of winning and and they do treat you different when you're a tour player doing what you guys do you come across people who you're in the public eye and wow I watch you guys and they treat you different and as much as actually now I find that quite a hollow interaction when you sometimes have that not for the fault of the person it's just when people become starstruck probably the wrong word for it but they're in awe of a, of a skill set that you might have they don't necessarily treat you as just Andy and Piers or Nick. It's me and my golf or Nick Doherty, the golfer. Um, and that's quite addictive, though. When I was younger and I'm 23, lording up, going around the world, making loads of money, winning tournaments. I mean, like, this is this is a bit of me. This this is a bit of me. This is why I turned pro. Where's my jet? Where's my jet? Um, and it was all great. And I think it really taught me to stumble and fall over like I did to realize that I was I was not on a very good track. Uh, and obviously, when I did fail, going down to the Challenge Tour, that was a massive punch to the solar plexus. The um, failing like that and being down there in a place where I thought, these guys aren't, in my mind, these guys aren't fit to lace my boots. And I found out very quickly that I probably wasn't fit to lace theirs. Yeah. Um, my very first tour back there, I missed all those cuts my year, lost my card. I nearly won again. Shows you how powerful the mind is. Playing absolutely horrific. Can't keep the ball on the golf course off the tee. I'm leading going into the last round in Colombia. I mean, what a place to find out where you're you I'm out in sticks in Colombia somewhere, playing in this, uh, carrying my own bag, thinking, what the bloody hell happened here? <laughs> and, um, and I nearly win. But then the longer it went, the more I realized that these guys are really good and they're bulletproof, like I used to be. They just pull the head cover off the driver and whip it down there. Can I drive it? Great, give me the driver. And now, of course, because of all the scarring for what I went through, I'm nudging four irons and you know, trying to steer it down there. And we know what that feels like. So the ego side of it for me was, was really, really challenging it. And going down to the Challenge Tour, as you said there when you spoke to me, that was that was a real um, reality check for me. And scary, actually. Because yeah. I think I then started to realise that, oh, okay, this might never be what it used to be again. Mm. Uh, makes total sense. With your golf then, Nick, when you played, when you played your best... What did you notice about yourself on the golf course in terms of your thoughts, your approach? How you know what what were the things that you did really well? You know, did you think much about your swing? Like, what 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 was your sort of uh, recipe for success when you played well? Um, when I played well, I think I was feel it's ironic. Everything the opposite, polar opposite to where where it all went wrong. Actually, I was pretty fearless with uh, 
if it was doable, I was going for it. And um, funny enough, I'm reading Ego is the Enemy at the moment, so I'm sure you've probably read. And uh, it goes against everything. There's a part of me, though, and, and ironically doing the job that I do now, the romantic side of our sport and telling a story, like the Miracle Medina, for instance, I love all that. I love the romance of it. I am the guy that cries at sports films. I am that person. And, 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 and that's sort of how I wanted sport to be for me. And so in that time, though, that was sort of how I want it. You know, it, under the pressure when you could lay up, three wood, give me the three wood, you know, and wrestling it off the caddy. And I think that sort of aggression to my game was something that was always there. I was never afraid because I never thought about what it would mean to fail because it wasn't something that came in my mind. I was also a very good putter um clutch putter when it came down to it i had to hold them i hold them um streaky most of the time but when it needed it to, to be there it, it would be there for me um i think mentally ironically even though arguably we could say uh, as much as it looks like it was a technical thing at the end that went wrong on me it wasn't it was it's a mental thing that manifested itself in, in a physical sense um but ironically at my best my mental game was was my strongest asset you can yeah. hear that. They can hear that from makes how you're sense. talking. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely makes sense from what you're saying. So it's interesting, obviously, in an ideal world, of course, the ideal world of golf, you would still be there now. You'd be in the top 10 in the world and you'd be playing your trade. But do you think losing your card in some maybe slightly different, twisted lifestyle way was probably a, probably a good thing? Do you think it gave you a different perception on life and do you think you're living a better life now as a result does that make sense depends if you're asking me or the ego <laughs> i'm asking i'm asking well, I, th- I know what the ego is going to say but i'll be interested to know what you have to say <laughs> the ego thinks that the ego still thinks i'm going to get back there yeah <laughs> let me tell you the ego is still thinking rory needs to put well if he's going to beat me yeah. but uh <laughs> no, the um to be honest i think it's a it's a great question because it's something that i've um come to the realization of through what happened, not because I made any really clever decisions or found myself in any way. I was forced to go down a different path. I, you know, I didn't choose to leave golf. Golf told, golf told me to clear out my locker and go home um, uh, in quite a dramatic fashion when it went wrong. And um, I think that's when I came to terms with that I'm much more than a golfer because I had to, you live and die by the same sword. So if you crave how it feels when you shoot the 66 and the praise and the headlines and the TV coverage and the media outlets and and all those feelings you have to also take responsibility for the 77s and that feels bad and when there was a lot of that coming uh, and i couldn't escape it at the end of my career all anyone wanted to talk to me about was how i was failing 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 every time anyone interact with me it would almost be like an arm around the shoulder um with a sympathy like i was sick um that was really really hard so it forced me to have to well get angry actually i became really angry why does everyone see me as nick the golfer doesn't even realize there's a person here, but actually I built that person. That's all I really wanted. My ego only ever wanted that to be the person who was there. Cause this is so, it just feels too good. The high is so high. It's like the lows I'm off for a bit, but then I need to get back there. I need to get back there. And a lot of golfers live like this. And to a degree, I think a lot of great players do have, I think most, I'm probably trying to be too polite there. I think nearly all the players have to have a strong ego. There has to be that element to you to be successful in this sport. There has to be that fight and willingness to put someone down that, um, that's going to get in your way to win. And, and it goes a little bit against where I live my life now. I don't have that toughness that I used to have back then. But what it did allow me to do was find something that makes me truly happy. And, and my, 
who I am not hinge on how I do. I still battle it every single day, every single day. So when I did the watch along, for instance, the other day, which went really, really well on Sky, and it's three hours, 45 minutes in vision, which is not normal. <laughs> with six guests over dodgy Wi-Fi connection, <laughs> uh, doing something we've never done before. And it was a big deal for Sky. So all of a sudden you've got all the other channels sort of like, how's it going to go? And it's like, oh, you know, you think you always think you've like, well, once I've done the Masters like I have for Sky, that's it. But ironically, even though this was from my living room, it felt a massive amount of pressure. And there was a lot of things to process. And it was such a big event and got to get the right amount of light and shade. There's a huge amount of pressure there. It went really well. My ego was loving the praise that was being heaped on. And I had to, it took all my strength to go, that's great. But actually, what do I think? What could I have done better? What bit am I proud of? Did you put in what you should? And yeah, you did. Well, well, then you should feel good about that. And actually, as much as it's nice, none of it really matters. Yeah. From, with all due respect to the public, and we're making a promise harder in our jobs because you're making something that's consumed. Same for you guys. So arguably, your job involves making the people happy. Yeah, yeah. Which is not easy when, yeah. when you're battling the ego. Um, you still got to create for me though and the bit I'm better at now is I create a space for me within all of that yes I'm supposed to make programming that's not supposed to make me happy it's supposed to make people who watch it happy um, but I've got to create space for me to to make sure that I'm doing what I want and getting what I want from my life and that's where I'm at now rather than I think when I was playing I was doing it for other people um, largely my dad largely to for the, the feeling of how he would make me feel when I succeeded because yeah. they were so few and far between. And he was so critical of me and so hard on me. Mm. They were the best bits. And that is not right. No. So One, I... it's too hard to win. It's too hard to win. Oh, on yes, so I course. did it three times and over 300 goes. Um, for then those moments to not even be mine. They belong to someone else. You know, and I think for me, that was the wake-up call. Yeah, definitely. So would you say that you're more fulfilled now? Uh, yeah, 100%. 100%. And my life's changed. You know, I, It sounds that way. I don't... I haven't got those highs. I have, um, but they're good, and I know that. And as much as I, you do get a massive buzz off live TV, you guys have done it. Um, you know, when that red light goes on it at the Masters, and I'm in my suit trying to slide into David Livington, Livingston's shoes, who was brilliant at what he did for so many years, and it's brand new to me. And you, and deep down, the ego saying, "Oh, they won't like you, mate. You're too young. <laughs> You're not going to have the gravitas that David Livingston has, mate." You won't be able to make sure you do a good job. Make sure you do your best job you've ever done, ever, now, right now. Do it right now. Do it. And, uh, <laughs> that's, like, uh, that's not a nice feeling. Uh, but the buzz reminds me of that first tee because we all have those feelings on that first tee where you do. And there's players. And the one interesting thing from Medina the other day was hearing, for instance, Martin Keimer talk about normal stuff. What if I miss this? Oh my God, this is an ugly match. Oh, I don't feel so good on this. Yeah, and it's like these normal thoughts that we would all normally have and we think that these top players don't think about, they do. And uh, on those first tee, when we'd stand there and I was at my peak, there would still be sometimes I'd think, God, the hour bounds is close, isn't it? Down the right. Or someone had mentioned that, that it was out of bounds. <laughs> Jeez, is there in it? That is quite narrow. But uh, you'd always manage to think, oh, right, come on. And you go to what you you do and your focus to be able to deliver your best performance. And I still get that buzz of those feelings and dealing with them on air now. You know, what if I dry up? What if I'm looking down the lens and I can't remember what I want to say? And which happens. It's called corpsing. And um, <laughs> it is. It's a, it's a real thing. Um, uh, and it's, uh, you know, for me, it's something that is a, a lot of fun to do still. But I have a more wholesome life. And that doesn't mean that golfers don't have wholesome lives. It's just for me, it wasn't the healthiest life I could have been living at the time. It was a lot of fun, but it wasn't the healthiest life I could have been living. 
yeah, it sounds that way. It sounds that way. And it's, yeah, it's, and, and as you say, there'll be golfers out there now who are in that same place, not for sure. Yeah. It doesn't mean they can't play well. Oh, of course. Uh, and it doesn't mean you can't work out. I mean, don't get me wrong. If I could know what I know now and be as good as I was as a player, I don't know. It's so hard to say because I love being part of a team. Uh, I'm sort of built that way. And golf's not really that way. Mm. <laughs> uh, as much as you are a team, you're the CEO, you're the boss, the yeah. book stops with you. And um, was this now, I'm just a cog in the wheel. Uh, I, and it's an important role, but I need on, I lean on people and I can help people and they can help me. And I love that. Yeah. Um, and I enjoy that. So I don't know. I still think I'm sort of as much as the, I'll never get the adulation that I used to receive for winning tournaments, doing what I do now. I really enjoy doing what I'm doing now. Probably, probably to the same degree, if not a little bit more than when I was playing. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It comes across the way it really doesn't. Obviously what you're doing on TV is, is phenomenal now. So, you know, we, we, we think it was needed as well at Sky, to be honest. I mean, as much as David was great at his job, having someone young and fresh like yourself is, was, was really important. So kudos on that for sure. Just, just interested on, obviously you're still very much in amongst it at events. How different is life on tour now to when you were competing? Or well, they use Tuesdays very differently to how we use them. Um, they uh, Tuesdays, Tuesdays, no, Tuesdays for us, no, Wednesday was recovery day. Uh, depends sometimes Tuesday, depends if we got there on a Monday night, but if we got there on a Tuesday, um, and you were playing in the pro am, there's a group of us, and I think of guys like Steve Webster, Simon Dyson, Jamie Donaldson. Uh, Rosie on the odd occasion uh, when he'd be over. When we, I'm talking young though now, like we're like you know 19, 20, 21. You know Tuesday would be we'd be out. Even if you're in the pro am, if you're in the afternoon pro am, then we're out, out. But I mean, if you <laughs> we'd be out on the Tuesday, but we'd probably go out and we'd all have a knock on the. Be, we'd play in a four ball on the Tuesday for sure, and we'd just play a match. There'd be none of this like working around the different pins and you're going through the book properly. And it'd be like, oh, you need to buy a book because I need to know how far I've got. And, and we just go and play. And it'd be great. And it was time of our lives. We have these money games on a Tuesday and it'd be brilliant. So throw the balls off, just like everyone else does at the club. And yeah, that's yeah. how we sort of do our practice rounds. Uh, so laid back there. And it was real, we were all bulletproof. We were all bulletproof. We all believed in each other. And we just, it was great fun. And it, it probably was a good thing. We What we were lacking in terms of preparation or professional uh, preparation we were making up for in terms of always keeping on our games on the on the edge mm. but uh the nights out were were notorious and the uh the times out were a lot of fun uh, i would have to say i i did lead the way i was responsible for most of the trouble that people got in <laughs> but um uh, i know i was a young man i was living the dream and you know i think a lot of it for me came from the fact that i had such a restricted childhood yeah uh, i hadn't been out I, I mean i i had my first girlfriend when i was 15 years old but it wasn't that i'd never been out I'd never been out until I was like 17, like out. I'd never, you know, you know, the stuff, little bits of trouble you get to your mate. I never did that because all I did was go to school, come back. And if it was the summertime, spike straight on, on the course till it went dark home. I'd have to either do homework or, or dinner, whichever happened first. And then bed, rinse and repeat Saturday, Sunday, be comp comp, but then practice on both sides of it. Dad would drop me at Formby or Shore Hill. And I'd practice all the way up to the comp time, play it, practice till it went dark. He'd pick me up at the end of the day. Or he, he'd be with me. I'd get a lesson maybe at Royal Burtdale with the first coach I had was Richard Bradbeer. And that was my existence. And he was really hard on me. Like, uh, Dad, and I wouldn't be, want to be like this with, with my kids. 
Um, but it's hard for me to pick pick at him because I did make it. Yeah. So yes. it's a weird one for me. Yeah. Um, part of me wants to say you bang out a line, mate. <laughs> but um, and I did. I wrote him a letter. I mean, I won't go into details of what's in it. I wrote him a letter to say um, thank you, but also to voice my opinion because it's always easy, I think, to do that when you write a letter to someone. When you say it to them, they feel things that make them want to react in that moment. Uh, and I wrote him this letter, uh, which he really appreciated and he's kept to this day. And effectively relieved him of responsibility, though, because when it all went wrong, um, my dad um, really got back into being that same guy. And of course, now I'm an adult and I don't take it quite as well as I did when I was a 12 year old. So, um, so that, of course, you can imagine the friction was fairly heavy duty. So I just said, this is not your problem anymore. Thank you for the ride to this point. You've given me a lifestyle, a wonderful home where I live, a sport that I love. That is part of my job. I know it will be. This is mine. This is mine to deal with and it'll be what it'll be. And I'm all good. But thanks, Dad. And, uh, and we've been a lot better ever since then, you know, and I think that was really important for me to be able to take ownership of my own golf going forwards as well. But the, um, you know, that upbringing meant, meant that when I got on tour, I think all of a sudden traveling around the world and dad not there to say, what are you doing? I could call up and lie. Yeah. Like, well, oh yeah, I've been right. What are you doing? I'm just going to bed, dad. Time, you know, the time change. I'll speak to you tomorrow, mate. See you, dad. Bye. And then, get the dancing gear on. <laughs> out. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, God. Brilliant. So in terms of your, your coaching then, you mentioned your first coach there at Birkdale. How hard did you work at your technique? Was that, was that a real key part for you? Was that some, were you interested in the swing? Was it, you know, obviously, you've got somebody like Rosie who's um, really detailed on that. Were you interested in that, and how hard did you work? Less so back then because my, my source of information was my dad. Uh, my dad's a self-made man. Um, he, he, was, he came from nothing. He got a job as a mechanic. Um, and he's a wheeler, he's a typical scouser, a wheeler dealer made his way and uh, ended up owning a dealership, selling out, doing brilliantly for himself. I mean, a super success story. Um, and when you know people like that, and he is that guy, arguably this all sort of came to a head when mum passed away and I realized that he wasn't bulletproof. He is that man in my life, as much as we've had really tough times, he was that guy that if he said it was going to be all right, it was going to be all right. I believed him 100%, which is nice to feel like there's someone who will always make it all right for you in your life. And I felt that. Um, but he was the guy who really taught me, and he was a five handicapper. So all the information he learned was from what he'd watched in videos and what he'd seen. And there's some great footage of me. Um, and it goes back, I think we, I've done this, talked with you guys maybe before about the Lee Westwood story with his driving. But the my one with him was, I remember there's a footage, an old video we had changed into DVD so we could see it. And I'm at Formby playing. I'm only about nine. And uh, he says, right. He says, so now hit me a fade. So I said, okay. So I'm walking in there. A little podgy as well because I was a little bit podgy when I was little. And then he says, so hit me a fade. He says, how do you hit a fade? And I turn around. You know that face that kids do like, oh, I don't remember. He goes, go on. How do you hit a fade? He says, swing it a little bit longer. Nice and smooth. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd hear it like oh my god but then so you see me get over it like, whoosh, whoosh, beautiful is beautiful he on instagram little. can we can we tag him in that if we yeah. do it? <laughs> <laughs> no but that that's what my dad that was my, that, that's what my dad that you know in his mind that's what it did though well, the fact that marries and this ties into a lee westwood story jump when i did the um driving master class when the very first time i ever did for sky and i was terrified uh, because it was my first bit of live TV, 12 and a half minutes on your own. Lee's not got any talk back in. I've got talk back in. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't know. And you do, you ask these questions, right? Because I'm confident, but now I'm not in my ballpark anymore. This is some, something else. 
and now is like 12 half minutes it's like whatever but then what <laughs> what if i don't know what to say and i'll like, oh, no, be fine be fine and i was playing it was british masters i'd shot a couple under lead shot one under ironically so i beat them on the day it was after the first round driving masters this will be mega this will be mega because lee westwood for me is arguably uh, not for me arguably for me he is the best driver of a ball i've ever seen in terms of consistency of what he can deliver Right, 12 and a half minutes. And they're like, right, coming to you. And you can feel it. The first time's the worst. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God, it's going to happen now. And they count me back from a break. And, uh, and I can hear the program in my talk back in my ear. And they go, three, two, one. Knit your envision. Hello, welcome to our first live Sky Sports Masterclass here at the British Masters. Brilliant. We're going to drive him on today. It's with Lee Westwood, one of the greatest drivers of all time. This is going really well. Uh, turn to Lee and think, I, I, actually, this is a bit of me after all. And, um, and I'm chatting to Lee and think, this is great. So Lee, go on, talk us through your fade. And, and he just said, well, he says, fade's my natural shot, really. So I, I just hit my normal shot. <laughs> like, oh, Christ. And then my ego, 12 minutes to stop talking. I, oh, my God. How am I going to turn to the 12 minutes? It's like, no, I need more than that, mate. I need more. So I can't think of anything. So uh, go on, Lee, show us one. And I'm not even looking at him now. I can't. I, I mean, there's all sorts going on. Things banging around my head. I'm panicking. Massive panic. I'm not even watching. And he's just going, beautiful little buttery fade from... From like that, one after another, on the shot tracer. I mean, it's an exhibition. Okay, I've got an idea. How do you hit a draw, Lee? Because if he if he doesn't do anything to his fade, how do you hit the draw? That'll be that'll be all right because the draw you'll have loads to say. He says, "Well, and I'm trying at the draw at the moment. I just I teared up higher and hit it. I hit it harder. <laughs> but, oh no, 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 oh, oh no, no, no. Now do I have to jump in here and actually say? Because if I don't say anything, folks at home think I also don't know how you hit a draw." I'm like, how can you not know to it? Draw, and he wasn't saying that. What he was saying is that's all he thinks about. So, he thinks about so I, I teared up high and I hit, I hit hard. And I thought, oh my God, how am I going to get through this? And anyway, we did get through it. And all the way through it, he's hitting these most, it was an exhibition of driving. And they got to the end of it and thought, that was horrific. That was horrific. There was nothing in there. And all I'm thinking at this stage, because my game's going, and now I know a lot. Now I know a lot, a lot. Now I know all the numbers. Now I'm a track man expert, right? And I'm thinking, he didn't even dabble with face to path. He didn't even, what? It's so simple to explain to people. It's like, why would he not do that? How can you be that good and not be able to explain that? He could explain that. It's not that complicated, though. And I actually thought afterwards, the genius of Lee Westwood and why he is, for me, the greatest driver of all time is because when he wants to hit a fade, it's just his natural shot, really. Mm. And when he wants to hit a draw, he tees it up higher and it's harder. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if it was that simple. If we all did that, and that is all I had to do tomorrow to go out and hit fades and draws like Lee Westwood, it would be the easiest game in the world, and I'd be back out there playing in five minutes. But for me, it's not. For me, it's having to go through and pull the pull the trouser press to pieces and try and stick it all back together so it gets so clunky in my mind that I can't handle that information. So bringing that together, for me, one of the great lessons I learned at the end of my career and I'll give it at the start, but I doubted it at the start because I thought, God, Dad, you just don't know what you're talking about, mate. And it's more because of good luck than good judgment that made it yeah. uh, to this point when actually it was just simple. And I was a bit like Lee West was that stage. I knew, I just knew how to make the ball do that. And I do it all the time. You, you sit with Charlie Hall. You, you ask her a question. I, when I did one of the lives with her, you ask her a question, you can tell. When we years ago, this was uh, uh, we did it at uh, the London Club years ago, a live live, and um, with an audience and everything. And uh, she just knows how to make it happen, which is the best way to play this game. If you can, it's not a luxury for you guys because you need to be able to understand it and explain it as well. Uh, and for coaches, I think it's the hardest thing 
in the world. And I always notice this with my coaches, how difficult it must be to be able to watch all those swings, see all these different types of things going on, to be able to find a way to adapt to help that person get better, but not see all those things in your own game and, and not be wanting to think about it with that sort of technical detail all of the time. Uh, and it absolutely has a time and a place. And I think it's essential for coaches to know the ins and outs of all that works. And, and I have faith in the best coaches uh, and exactly how you guys do it. I mean, for me, what you guys do in terms of the being able to make it really simple, the message, but base it on the facts of all the science and, and the technology you're using to provide the information to make it that way. That's the key. To baffle people with information is bad coaching, in my opinion. And there's a load of it. Yeah. especially in the modern day world of social media there's tons of it and it's destroying people's enjoyments of this golf of this game to be able to give someone a really super simple message but you have the credibility and understanding to know exactly where that comes from yeah. that's the skill for me of being a great coach and arguably you know maybe my dad got a few things wrong but he found a way to make golf really really simple for me when i was yeah. a kid which is why i got where i got to yeah. yeah, and you do see it whenever we spend time with whether it be Rory, DJ, John Rahm, the message or the answer back is always really simple. And it's almost, you know, whenever we're doing a piece of them, we're always thinking, well, how do we add a layer to that? And we'll always say, well, yes, and that's great because it does this and this. And But it's just so that people can get an understanding of almost understanding of why it happens. But for them, when it comes to execute, it is, as you say, it's, well, I might just move the ball forward a bit. You know, they just keep it so simple. And I think probably if you think about the players who are struggling, they're probably the ones who are actually probably working a little bit too hard on those sort of things. Well, you see it on the range, you know, with, um, and of course, everyone's got a track man, which is a great thing, I think, because there's such brilliant devices or whatever distance measuring device anyone chooses. There's so many out there, obviously, but, but I have a track man, for instance. And um, for me, the information feedback's great if it's used responsibly. Um, so what I used to do when I was working with Stu, Stu Cartwright, my coach, and the way we used it was that I would use it, especially for games and stuff, for practice that they're amazing, aren't they? Yeah. You can be on the range and have a proper performance session rather than, you know, I grew up as on the range of scrape hitting for like, how long's the left? All right, come on, let's go and pot. You know, that sort of mentality. It was only as I got on in my career that I became more professional in that outlook and obviously access to these sorts of things now. Um, very few of those guys are looking at all of their numbers on there, but most of the coaches have access to that. Yeah. And so they're looking at and they're not offering any information. I mean, Butch is one of the ones for me that always stands out with it. And I watched him with Ricky Fowler a few times and I've been looking of knowing him like I know him to be able to go and, and stand next to Butch on the range when, he, when he's doing a coaching session. And you'll see he's seen something, but it, his knowledge of knowing when to say something, when not to say something. Bear in mind, we're talking about elite athletes in the major championships. If I'm with Butch, it's generally at majors because he's there with us at Sky uh, or in the past anyway at, at all the majors. Um, and so knowing when to say something, when they need a little nudge, when to tell my little gag. Butch tells more jokes than he does technical information on those yeah. ranges. And it's all about getting the player in the right mindset. And he can see when something's going on. Sometimes just pulling them away from a shot when they don't really know what he's doing to helping them reset can help nudge them technically where he wants them. And for me, it's brilliant. It's super simple. And it looks like actually he's a cheerleader when truth you know, and he's been a world-class coach mm. in that moment. And um, yeah. I, I really see that now. Uh, I, unfortunately, I think for a lot of guys who are trying to make their way in the game, 
it's difficult to do that. Like if I see some fellow I've never seen before on the range at Wentworth, the, the PGA, which is generally what you do see because the, the PGA is a nightmare for people turning up out the blue you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a circus on that range. It was my most horrific week of, of the year for me. That was always the same every year. And not the tournament, the range. The range was brutal, uh, especially when I started struggling my game. They were queuing up to come and tell me how to fix it. And uh, <laughs> but they, but you'll see them down the range. And if one of them comes up and, and just stands there and starts just having a little bit of a chinwag, and just says, "Oh, you know, just a tiny bit quick then in transition," most people, are, most people, are going to go, "Oh, I right, mate." Whereas Butch can do that because he's got all those nations behind him. <laughs> you know, so he had to make it in the first place. So I think there's this real feeling people trying to make the way that they've got to have the newest miracle yeah, yeah. this is how you do it this is how, this will revolutionize your game and uh understandably it's it's a competitive industry where people are trying to outdo each other and that's not always uh, in the best interest of players that they're working mm-hmm. with because they're doing what they what they have to to get a foot in the door sometimes you know and and they, you know I, I have a great faith in a lot of coaches and I've worked with a lot of coaches over the years and all of them bring something different to it but I'm no believer in there being one way to do everything and I found that myself when my game went wrong and I started to work my way around all of the coaches which I did most and a lot of these guys I'm talking about are ones that I have a huge amount of respect for uh, I can't remember two of them saying the same thing to me no no I can't remember two of them wow. and they're all the best whether it be from Led to Pete Cowan to Butch um, Sean Foley, um, James Ridyard, uh, Stu Morgan, Stu Cartwright. Uh, these are all, this is all in a year. Um, DT, the guy who I spent most of my career with. Um, and all of them are great coaches in my mind. They are yeah. all really great coaches, but they all had a different take. And for me, that were, at the time was confusing because I was trying to hang my hat on getting back to being a good player. I'd fixed through technique and it was, it was far from what was really wrong with me. Um, but that was the sort of, oh my God, was if they'd all said, you need to just get strength in that left hand gripper touch, mate, for instance, then they'd be, oh, brilliant. Excellent. They're all sort of, you know, coming into line with each other. And that's clearly what's wrong. <laughs> all the top coaches in the world think my grip's a bit weak. Well, it wasn't. Yeah. One would say this and then he goes, and sometimes it'd be the absolute opposite. And then, and that's, that's hard. That blows yes. I think the key thing with, <clears throat> excuse me, with the, with the best coaches is they, they're not trying to show you how much they know. They're not going, I want to just show, show you that I'm really intelligent. I know what I'm talking about. They're, they're, they're working out in their minds. How can I say the smallest amount of things to this guy to get the maximum improvement? Whether it is, let me just change that grip, or whether it is, do this with the left foot. And, and I think somebody like Butch, he doesn't need to prove to anybody what he knows, does he? He's like, well, look, I've got the confidence that I can just shut up and say what I'll, say something when, I, when it actually means something to fill the air. I, remember, I always remember, actually, Pierce, we played in the Scottish Open a, cu- a couple of years ago in the Pro-Am with Paul McGinley. And then um, it was quite nerve-wracking, actually, playing with Paul. And we were like, oh, God, we're playing Paul McGinley in the Scottish Open Pro-Am. And, and anyway, <laughs> we had a good chat with him on the way around. And he said, will you come and take a look at me on the range after? And, and me and Pierce were like, oh, God. You know, we're like... <laughs> And, and and it was great, but it was a, such a straight, strange experience because you're going, well, what do we say to Paul McGinley? What do we say? And, we, and I think it was like part of your ego wants to tell him, okay, let's give him loads of things to work on because he knows how much you know. And I remember us, Pierce, he was like, well, I think we just said, well, if you just put, put your forward. ball position back, I think it was back, 
Because if we put your ball position back. back and swing a little bit more left, that'll neutralise things out a little bit. And it was like, well, I'm glad we did that. I'm glad we just said something yeah. so simple that it was like, well, we didn't need to tell him how much we are because actually we could really screw him up. And we had yeah. to put our ego aside and think about him instead, which I think is the key thing. And it's it's interesting because he did question well, it. He was he was yeah. he was very much he was very much saying, you know, we said, well, what about this? What about that? And we're like saying, you told us what you wanted to do. That's what you need to do. And it was we had a we had the benefit of playing golf with him as well, obviously, and seeing it in action. And you kind of figured it all out before then, really. But it was it was yeah, like Andy says, it's quite it's quite strange that you've put in a position where you've told someone what the issue is, but actually they want more, they want more, they want more information. But that's only because he would have been given those layers of information in the past. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I, I, for me as well, I think um, there's a couple of things that are important. One that's been authentic to who you guys really are. And actually in the aftermath, whatever happens on the back of it, um, you think that was what he needed to know mm-hmm. at that time, rather than what I, what my ego wanted him to know yeah. that I knew. And, and I think uh, the fact that as professionals as well, especially at that level, as much as in that moment when our, our brains are scattered and we're on red alert and it's fight or flight in that environment, when the dust settles and golfers will think back on the conversations, they'll be more than aware of the fact that you would pitch into him yeah. if you were if you went down that road because it, we're all very aware of what a, what a sales pitch is on the range. Yeah, and uh, you see it, you see you see it quite a lot, um, and I understand it. Because golf is a business, and um, I understand why coaches trying to get out there in their mind probably justify it as in I just need a break, and then I can be me, and then I can be <laughs> me and just do it as I as as, as I want to do it, and just tell them what they need to know. But to get out there, I just need an in, so I need to wow him. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, and yeah. I get that, I get it, I understand it. It's just a shame that's how it works for for a lot of guys trying to break in and. The thing I always think with Butch is I wonder if he was always like that. Yeah. And also, did he just then end up, because there would be guys out there who go, like, I watched Ricky with that takeaway drill. And I've looked at Butch before and I've said, are you seriously not going to change that up? Is is that it? Right. Are you? (laughs) Is that all you're going to do? He went, well, that's what he's got to keep doing. And then Butch would say something, but like Butch, like as in, like, would you let me know once you've checked out his bag balance? You know, it's been <laughs> yeah. terrible. you know, and he's right. Um, but you just think at the start there must have been guys who go, mm, I'm not sure this guy's legit. You know, before he's got all those majors, like we're talking like yeah, in the eighties. Yeah. You know, yeah, going yeah. back. You know, bear in mind, Butch worked in Morocco and all sorts for the Prince or for the King and. Um, you know, he's always been a high flyer from golfing pedigree, of course, as well, with his dad being a master's champ. But um, it, it's it's tough to be so. I think one of the things that's lovely for Butch is that he is just Butch all the time. The Butch you see on Sky is the Butch that's in the green room, but maybe with some more fun stories than he can tell on Sky. <laughs> but, um, but it's the same Butch you see on the range. He is being Butch Harmon authentically all of the time. And and I think that's a lovely way to live your life rather than yeah. having to be a performer at certain times and be something for someone. I yeah. think it's not a great place to be. No, yeah. I think it shows that does as well. You can you get his authenticity over the camera as well. And that's why he's so good to watch as well, really. Hi guys, Andy here. Just wanted to interrupt you because we are so excited about a new project that we have just launched and 
It is called Complete Putting. Now this is our most requested coaching plan. Everybody wanted a putting coaching plan, so we've created it just for you guys. And it's a four-week plan that covers everything in it, from how to read the greens, how to create a consistent putting stroke to start the golf ball online, how to really dial in your pace control, as well as really finding the right equipment. And we're so excited about this. This is the best plan in our minds than what we've created. And it's gonna be launching at the end of June over at meandmygolf.com, so just wanted to give you guys a heads up and make sure you check it out then. Let's get back to the podcast. So what, is, what does golf mean to you now, Nick? After all you've been through in terms of your career, what does it mean to you now and how, yeah, I suppose that's the simplest form. <laughs> um, so it's the simplest answer is it's, it's what I do, not who I am. Uh, is the big change in what it is now. Whereas before I, I was a golfer and I was Nick the golfer and I think I bought into that. Now golf is just what I do. It's a massive part of my life. Um, I love the game. And that's the thing. I, I notice it. A lot of guys who who didn't finish in, you know, as badly as I did um, in terms of the fall off the map, really detest the game and do anything to not play. I love playing still. Mm. I love playing. I think one of the reasons is because I was a perfectionist in terms of what I expected of myself. Uh, one of the reasons why it became even harder to find my way back because I was far from perfect when I was struggling and I was intolerant of mistakes, which is a, a bad, wrong choice of job if you're intolerant of mistakes. Uh, now I am, because I don't, I, I, I don't deserve to play well. So if I go and play now, I don't deserve to play good because I play like 12 times a year. Yeah. And yet, because of that, mm. I'm almost bulletproof again. Because, <laughs> because, because you know, I think, well, you never know, though. And I go out there and I freewheel and I play great. And the only time it goes wrong is now and then, before, if I'm playing if I'm playing with someone, I think, hmm, I'm eager, oh, you don't want to play bad in front of him, though, do you? There's no reason why I play bad, because I don't play bad generally. I just go out and play, and, okay, I won't always shoot 66. I do sometimes, but I'll hit loads of really, really good shots, as good as I ever used to hit, but I'll hit a few clangers as well. But if it's with someone that I think is going to matter, or what they will think, or they'll judge me, even though I've got no reason to think I'll play well, I might just go down to the range to hit a few balls. <laughs> and then and then I go down there and I start working on and oh that feels good. And the thing is I've seen this I've seen this film so many times before. It's like you've just hit 30 balls, mate, having done this every day, all day, for decades, and you still couldn't fix it. And now in 30 balls, having not played in a month and a half, you think that now is going to be easy to take <laughs> onto the first tee tomorrow when you really, really, really want to play well. Like, oh, let's see how this works out again, shall we? And sure enough, it's not there. And I end up reverting back to just my go-to feels. And I have some really great go-to feels that I worked on with Stu Cartwright. And it really allowed me to get my enjoyment back because I got to the point where I couldn't play anymore because I couldn't keep my driver on the golf course. And um, I had this, it was a yip, effectively. And, and, and we're talking like 100 yards offline to the right-hand side. And it would get to the point where I'd just sort of freeze through strike because um, I, I get really steep in transition we're going into a little bit of detail obviously yeah, really, real steep in transition and then I'd start lifting the handle up to try and shallow out through strike and of course I'd be really up with the handle face is wide open and obviously I'd have the attempt to say but the ball is way gone by the time that happened whereas in my career I've always been a flipper I've always been someone that's at the time because that's how I've played not when I was a kid and this is an example of how coaching has changed when I was little I had a grip I had a grip like, like Dustin Johnson I had a face that looked up to the sky and my first coach, who I loved dearly, and I think he was a brilliant coach, was the first to start just nudging that back. And then I got to lead, and we really nudged that back yeah. to the point where we're like, <laughs> we're all about toe now. And and at the time, and Nick as well. I remember when Nick was teaching me, 
he'd be like, yeah, we only get a little bit of weed, get that toe hanging. Nick never had a toe hanging in his life. No. <laughs> you know, but, but that's the, the difference between a player and his feel. It's like he'd feel that. I, 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 but I, and I ended up with that guy. And I remember being with Laird and we'd have this cup in this left wrist in, in deli- down in delivery. I'd be like, you know, turn on to him. I'd be like, how the bloody hell do I get around? <laughs> oh, well, it's, I don't ask any questions. I'm sure it works. Yeah. It's led. It's led that. You know what I mean? Greg Norman, Nick Caldo. Um, and uh, and I, I, I love Led. I get on great with him. Um, and he's a great blow. But for me at the time, in hindsight, it wasn't the right move for me. Because from that yeah. point on then, because I had a natural ability and I wasn't a deep thinker about my goal swing at that point, I was all about just having to time that. And I was good at it. But I blow out and cold when I was off. I achieved eighty, even in my prime. I, I, I still delivered plenty of eighties in my career, even when I was playing well, uh, because when it was off, it was off. But I'd be really resilient. As in, the next day I could shoot sixty-seven. Whereas at the end, I couldn't get it back mentally. Then I'd start to freeze up. And if you're someone who's playing with tension and fear with a weak with a weak club face, you're, you, this this is not not a good place to yeah. be. And we, you know, I think there's a, as much as I'm never going to advocate that there's one way of doing it. I do think it's less reliant on tapping into skills under pressure with uh, a, a stronger club face. I think I think you've got much more. You can use your body turn to stabilise that club face a lot more than having to rely on uh, rotation of the forearms and hand action through strike to try and square that face up. I think in hindsight, for me, that's if I'd have stuck to that path, I'd have been a better player. Um, but it wasn't fashionable at the time. You know, I'm a '90s kid. That yeah. that, that wasn't what it was done then. That wasn't what they were teaching. And Led was the man then, really. And um, I'm not saying that that's wrong. And Led's moved away from that to a degree now as well. Um, and that's fine because it evolves. I asked Butch about this and he said, got to be honest, we didn't even have cameras, really. I mean, it, it's like we talk about, like, oh, you know, being able to slow it down. We, we, most of his career, he's teaching this stuff. He didn't really have a camera. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, then yeah. that came in. So much you could do. And now we know so much and we know about buying and mechanics of how it all works as well. And we can break it down into 3D motion or 4D motion capture. And and it's just like now we can scientifically say what's going to work better and or what works better for this individual with this body type and these mechanics. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's easy to now poke holes in all these top coaches from back then. Um, but in hindsight, that that's what, what I would have I would have done differently if I could. I think the key thing with this is that the key message, I think, for the guys listening to this is you've got to find a coach that suits you because there's so many coaches out there and just because they've got a name or a reputation, they might not suit your game. They might not suit your personality. So you've got to find a coach that you go when they say something to you. I remember my first coach, he'd say something to me and he would just click and I'd be like, yeah, that makes so much sense and it works. And if, if, it's, if you're having coaching and it doesn't make sense, you don't understand it and you're going away thinking, well, I don't really know, but I'll trust what he says. Then there's a, there's a mismatch there and I think you need to be leaving a, a lesson going, yep, I know exactly what I need to do. I, I know, I understand it, I get it and I'm seeing some improvements. If, if those aren't there, then I think you, you need to think about or ask the, ask the coach some better questions, ask or dig deeper. I don't think, I, I, seeing the guys, I, I'm going to use Rory as an example here. <laughs> Rory is one of the best ever asking questions. I, I was quite guilty of um, blind faith in people in terms of coaches and that. And if they, I, 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 for the right reasons, because I did have faith in them. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily, I would say I was the guy that said, well, why though? Yeah. They should tell me, to, and the unfortunate thing, I remember Led saying this to me. Um, he made a move, he said, this is a big move, we're going to change. When I first went to see him, and what didn't help, well, it did help, because it was a wonderful thing. I went to see him. 
my first lesson. Two months later, I won for the first time on tour, right, in Singapore. So immediately you've got a boom, I'm all in. And yeah, that's I mean. how I am. About, I'm all in. There you go. That's it, Led. You're the man. Thank you. Next 30 years, you'll be available, yeah? And, uh, and, it, and so I was all in on what he told me. So it was a big change, but I changed it by the second session. He looked, and I remember looking in, bear in mind the people he's coached. He said, that's extraordinary. And it didn't feel that bad to me. I find it very easy to change how something will look. He said, that's brilliant, but also very dangerous. And it's something that we'll have to monitor through your career because yeah. to be able to shift it that much it is is nice for us making this change. It's also not easy for us stopping you changing again and constantly moving around. Whereas these guys who, you know, they feel like they're making a massive difference and the things move this much. I mean, mm. to a degree, it's quite a nice thing that, you know, because it means yeah. that it's it's going to be like that all the time. It's yeah. never really going to move that much. And asking questions is essential. Um, and, and Rory is brilliant. At, well, why? Why do I need to do that? And and the good coach should always be able to tell you why. Yeah. Uh, and Rory's even better at then going. He weighs it up. He's such a. He's his golfing IQ is is as good as anyone, I think. And um, he will then make a decision. I don't want to do that. I need you to find a different way for telling me how to. Yeah to get to this point i don't like that yeah um and, and I, I admire that about him um for me it, it, with what i was doing to get away from with Stu Cartwright, the feels again what he gave me were and he explained it to me Stu was the one thing that i loved about Stu Cartwright is that i did then start to ask questions because i needed to understand it myself i started to take ownership of my game um which is something that rory is arguably the best at in the world he and you see it by his choices and how out of all the guys he is He's got a great team around him, but he's a one-man show, Rory yeah. McIlroy. He wants all of that responsibility. He wants yeah. ownership completely. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, with ownership, it meant that to get that away from feeling the steepness to then um, on the way down to then lifting the handle up through strike, I would feel like I'd lay the club down in transition. So I almost feel like it would stop and it'd lay, 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 lay. And all that time, my left wrist is getting stronger, 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 stronger as well. So not laying this way, laying this way, uh, which felt horrific. Um, at the time as well because I didn't know how to use that anymore I was like oh yeah. my god how the hell does that get off the ground what is that <laughs> uh, yeah um, but then from there Stu would say well now how are you going to strike because I'd be like that thing's going over there Stu that thing's going over there because I was a club fit was down here he goes well what do you have to do I said well it's then got to swing out and over my so all of a sudden it would lay down this way and then out and over on the way down and my grip would settle down lower through strike and the club would swing over the top and it would make me work harder left and I'd hit this lovely little peely cut and um and really for me that was as much as it's not a story that people go wow what a comeback i did come back to you know having a good finish in the dunhill links again i finished in the top 30 playing four times a year you know i got on the front page of the leaderboard at one stage in my own way that was my comeback yeah because i ran out of golf balls at fancourt a few years later in my i was on my way to shooting in the mid 90s because I couldn't keep the golf ball in the golf course off the tee and it would go 100 yards offline. And I ran out of balls on my way to shoot, shoot mid-90s, having been one under after six. So, wow. yeah, on the 16th tee was my last ball that, that I lost. And um, that was that was the dark, as dark as it got. That was the bottom of the barrel. Had you got to the point where you wanted to lose that last ball? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were like, yeah, let's just go. <laughs> and the caddy got the guy, Roy the taxi, the, the caddy was caddying for me. And bless him, he did. I was, it was so, I was at that stage, I was just broken. It was all internal, this, but I, I wasn't, I was trying to fix it with my technique. Um, I'm almost in tears. I'm not fighting it back all the time. I'm just like a complete mess. Dies down there with me as well. Little Max was a baby then. He's down there with me. I'm playing in the die data. And again, I'm on the challenge. I'm playing on an invite. 
thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing here? This is just, I hate this. I, I just, I wanted someone to say, you're not allowed to play anymore, mate. It would have been the best news in the world because <laughs> I hated the game at that stage. I just thought, this is, this owns me. And um, he came to me and I hit one. Well, so I'm 15 over and I've hit my first ball in to the junk. And Fancourt, the links has got hay down both sides. You don't find it. It might as well be OB stakes because you can't even go looking for it. So it's like that on every hole, which is my worst nightmare right now. So I've already hit one in. So I'm 15 over going at least 17 over. So I'm like, ball like that. And he goes, it gives me, he says, that's your last one. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, it wasn't like Tiger where, where Stevie had forgotten to put the sleeve of balls in the bag at the US Open. <laughs> You'd use them I had plenty. I had plenty. <laughs> um, so I, and, and I remember paying on thinking, God, this wouldn't be such a bad thing if I lost this. And uh, I didn't purposely hit it out because I just, one thing I've always, uh, it means a lot to me now in the aftermath is that I have a huge amount of pride and I never, ever, 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 <clears throat> ever gave up. Not one. Every single day I got up believing that this day will be the day I get it right again, which is remarkable because I'd be in tears, like inconsolable, in, in a terrible place mentally. But every morning, I don't know what it is about me. I suppose that bit's never, that bit was always bulletproof. Every day was the day I was going to fix it. Um, and, and, and so I just never, never threw it in like that. And, um, Anyway, I lost the ball and I was disqualified and it was the most happy I've been. I just thought, wow, that's that's got to be bad news when it's good news that I'm disqualified. <laughs> and the guy came up to me, the referee, and he, he didn't even look me in the eye. He didn't know where to look. And he said, um, well, I said, what's the deal? I said, am I DQ'd? He says, yeah. He says, unless we can get you some more balls. I said, don't you something there. <laughs> Uh, so uh so yeah it was that was a pretty dark place to be honest at, at that point but um but yeah getting up and and uh and going again every day is something that's helped me in good stead and to be honest to move away from it in the end i was grateful for it because i wasn't enjoying it yeah and uh moving into doing tv um was something that i've been asked again i'm lucky enough that obviously being married to die um they had easy access to me and the boss of golf had asked numerous times through die to me would i come and be a guest and i no 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 because i'm a i'm a tour pro and uh the minute i take my eye off that i might as well throw the towel in because i'm a player i will always be a player until i decide i'm going to do something else and tv interests me but not now i'm a, I'm a player i and in my mind i felt so owned by it. i thought i have to prove i don't know who because they were the invisible people that i didn't even know what they had no faces i have to prove to everyone that I can still do this. And bear in mind at this stage, I'm still, I'm now making the cut in the done. I haven't got my card back and it's not good, but I'm so far. I mean, I've, the improvement is just monumental. Unfortunately, there's no accolades for it because no one cares if you come 29th at the Dunhill. <laughs> you know what I mean? I almost needed to do the Ollie Wilson and win. Like, like wow. You know, uh, but I knew I'd done it. I was like, who are you doing this for? Like, who is this for? Who are you trying to, best? who are you looking for this praise from? Because as soon as you get it, you'll realize it means absolutely bugger all. No one cares. No one cares about your golf, Nick. It's insignificant <laughs> to them. And um, and the point was, then I thought, you know what? Sack it. I'll go and have a go. And I went in and did one. I think it was Bay Hill and it was Livo and I was his guest. And I went and did it and I came out and it had been five years of not being on tour or four years. No, at that stage, I think it had been maybe three years not being on tour. And um, I'd spent about five years, though, of, of people sort of, coming getting used to people treating you like a failure in terms of not being nasty just not knowing what to do or how yeah. to be around oh, you because they know you're struggling yeah um so all of a sudden there's text mate you were great on there tonight i thought oh 
God, that's nice. Sorry, say again. <laughs> yeah. like, Can you confirm that? Like, oh, I was like, that was quite nice. I'll have another go at that. And then um, obviously it grew from there to the point where they, they came to me eventually. The boss who, who was there at the time, he's not now, of Sky Sports, Barney, said um, the vision for you is to become an anchor for, for the coverage. I thought, well, that sounds fun. Because I like the idea of... You, you heard what he said properly there, yeah. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> just checking. I've been called that many times, but just not by him. Not uh, to my face, anyway. <laughs> um, but the, um, no, but the, I, I think uh, the opportunity was, was, was a perfect time for me. And being a presenter was cool and exciting because it's a different skill set. Sure, my golfing background gives me massive help because I know what the guys are thinking, which helps me with knowing what I should ask. Um, I they never surprise me with what they're going to say. Yeah. Um, and also the relationships, you know, they relax around me because like we all play, because my age, ironically, because I play with them all, whether it be Roy, we played tournaments together. You know, yeah. it's not like, oh, I used to play 25 years ago. It's like I, I played in all these tournaments not that long ago yeah. with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes a big difference. But being a presenter is a completely different job. I'm not a pro golfer. I'm a TV presenter, which is like, it's a different career altogether and it's mine rather than my dad's. Yeah. And I think because of that, it means more again to me as well. And I've just been very, very lucky, very, very fortunate with the timing of it as well. Uh, and finding something, almost stumbling upon something that um, I really enjoy. It's given me a second lease of think- life in a professional sense. And you know what, you can look at that, and we talk about that ourselves with what we do, and you think, oh, the timing was right. But I'm, and it's the same, and I'm sure you're the same that there's, yes, of course, there is an element of, you know, timing, but ultimately you were going to do something at that point. So you were going to do something, and you were probably going to do a good job of it as long as you put the effort into what you're doing. So I just, I think that's the sort of thing that would have happened anyway. But just on the broadcasting thing, because we've got some quick fire questions that we definitely want to ask you because they're always a bit of fun. But just on the broadcasting, what is, what's, What's the best thing about broadcasting for you and what's the best moment you've had? Um, my favorite part of it is being able to tell the story, to be honest. Um, I'm the presenter. Um, well, as you tell, because I'm a guest for you guys today and uh, I love my sport, as you can tell. that I, I love talking about it and um, I feel passionate about it and it's so much easier to engage with people and it's really pleasurable to engage with people when you're passionate about what you're talking about. But my job, it's more about asking those questions of you guys, for instance, in my normal role for what I do professionally. But you also steer the ship. So you, so, so you go the direction. And you can take it anywhere you want. So if you want to look at it, the way a program finishes, I can choose to look at how desperately Rory needs to win his next major championship and how much that's amping up the pressure. Or I can focus on the fact that they're going to come automatically. From the fact, from the fact that these performances, how well he's playing in other tournaments, and why he stands head and shoulders above all the other guys right now. So, as much as I'm not going to answer those questions, I'm going to steer it that way, one way or the other. And I like that responsibility because I like being able to think ahead and have to think on your feet and have to interact. And there's so many other things that go into it. It's not just have a chat for five minutes and then say goodbye. You know, all these time frames hitting marks, hitting counts all of the time with what we do and putting a program together. Um, I like the buzz of that and I like the responsibility of telling that story to people. Mm. Yeah. You can tell that. And, and a specific moment. Have you had a specific? Oh yeah. Um, so my favorite when moment. Lewis would have eventually told you how to hit a fade maybe. <laughs> no, no, he still hasn't told me that. Um, the, uh, it's his natural shot really. Um, <laughs> the, uh, 
the favorite moment probably is uh is presenting the masters and tiger winning um just because going back to augusta was a uh, very special thing for me it's not something we've touched on today but uh, a lot of the problems from my golf go back to losing my mum and it was at the masters when i played it in 2008 uh, i only played one masters i played well um i say play well I made the cut which i think is quite cool in your first first trip there Absolutely. um and the last time I saw my mum was on the back of the 18th green on the Sunday after I finished, they went back down to Orlando and I went to Harbortown and I run it. I was in contention the next week at Harbortown. I was only a few back going into the Sunday, three put the last and the Saturday heads under my arm, walking to the range punishment practice for 45 minutes, come off 15 missed calls on my phone from my brother. Mum had had a heart attack. Long story short, um, go down like a movie, seven days in a coma. Eventually she, she, we found out she's not going to come out of it, turn life support off. Um, and if she did ever wake up, which the doctor said was hugely unlikely, she won't be able to speak, eat, sleep, um, speak, eat, move. I wouldn't know who we are. Um, so yeah, worst case situation. So she died. And that's when I first found out I wasn't bulletproof. Um, because that's can't fix ever. That's it. It's finite. Death is finite. And, um, instead of me just going rolling with that, I made it my goal. I was in the Ryder Cup team at that stage. I made it my goal to make Faldo's team for my mum. Stupid thing to do. Um, and that's where the damage started to go on in my mind. And I didn't make it. I only just missed out on the last few, last few holes of, of that last event, Ben Eagles. Um, but that was the slippery slope uh, from that point. So going back there, um, after everything that's happened and that time on, uh, was really weird for me because I haven't been back to Augusta National since I played it. And to be going there doing this, mum would have been really proud of what I've done. You know, with... with um, you know, it's not the mistakes that you make in life. It's the way you react to them. And um, I reacted pretty well off some pretty rubbish times. Yeah. And um, to be in that role, presenting and anchoring the Masters for Sky Sports is not really where I saw saw me going at this <laughs> stage of my life. But I was there doing it. And then for it to turn out to be that Masters yeah. where Tiger wins again. Like, no, and I'm a, I am... I have no problem admitting it. I am the biggest Tiger fan going. <laughs> um, the best day of my career was when I played with him in the US Open. And for me, he he, I, I don't think golf's ever been played better than it has been played in a moment by Tiger Woods. As good as much as Jack's going to have won more majors by the end of it. But I never thought he'd win another major. And so to be there presenting my first uh, major, but my first Masters as well, and him win it, there was this sort of hands on the head moment in the studio with Butch and Paul. I'm like, Oh my God. I'm trying to pull myself back rounds because they've got to be professional when actually I'm like everyone else at home thinking, Oh my God, I can't yeah. be watching. <laughs> I thought I'd just sit that moment when he was like the Pied Piper walking up the 18th at the torch. Yeah, yeah. And now we're at the bloody masters and it's happening. I'm like, Oh my God, what am I watching? So to be, um, to tell that story and round that on pay off that line of, um, we get to say something that we never thought we'd get to say again. Tiger Woods is the Masters champion, which was my yeah. payoff. It was that's cool. That yeah, uh, that's that for me is the yeah that's the shining moment so far. That's like a pretty it. a pretty good moment as well, definitely. Okay, Nick, look, we're conscious of your time, so we're just going to quickly round up with some quick fire questions. Um, yeah, okay. What advice would you give to younger Nick? Um, play your game. Uh, don't be quick to take advice from everyone around you. Perfect. Uh, best advice you ever had? Uh, best advice I ever had was probably 
best advice I ever had was written on a plaque above our door. Um, and my dad, you put it there so that every time I picked the clubs out of the lock, out of my little locker, I'd say, and it said, it, and it was like our family motto, but it wasn't a family motto. Dad said it was. <laughs> said, if I believe, I will succeed. And I'm a big believer in things coming to fruition more easily, if nothing else, if you believe in them, you're passionate about them. So whatever it is in your life that you're passionate about is a good thing to pursue. Brilliant. Great. The most nervous you've been on the golf course? Uh, most nervous. <laughs> probably walk into the... Walk into the 16th tee, um, <laughs> bank course. <laughs> thinking, what are they going to say? What are they going to? What are they going to write? Um, uh, but probably also my last win, um, which I run. It was after my mum's death. It was a standout win where, like, from nowhere, I God knows, because I wasn't playing well. I was, you know, getting worse all the time, and somehow I, I shoot 64 to. The goose led by three going into the final round. Langer and I are on the same score, and I shot 64 to win. Um, back to the two put the last par five, and I played it really cagely. <laughs> and I three wood off the tee, and I had five iron layup, and then I a little pitch with rubbish into the green, <laughs> but short. I put up just over a little tier. I never had that before. I just I don't know in my career. I don't remember ever having to two put the last. It wasn't from far. It was 30 feet, maybe 35 feet two put the last to win it was just really hard <laughs> I just thought oh imagine if you don't do this and uh, it just popped in my head and it's like all you got to do is roll up to the side of the hole and it, but it was amazing how hard that was because you're just playing to not fail yeah, rather yeah. than playing to cheat and I wasn't yeah. very good playing on the back foot so uh, that was probably it <laughs> okay brilliant what's the best advice you could give an amateur um, bike size chunks I think is, is a good way to try and learn the game. Um, practice and, and being able to separate practice and play. The biggest thing I see wrong with, with uh, amateur golfers is that they go and have a lesson. And then quite often the next time they play is, is their next lesson. Yeah. And unfortunately, if you're going to spend money on a lesson or you're going to attempt to make a change in your game, see it very definitely in your mind as separate things. There's playing golf and there's practicing swinging. And there's and and I, for me the big important thing was and I was always quite good at this. Um, when I'm doing my range stuff and working on technique, it does not matter where the ball goes. It's irrelevant. In fact, if you're hitting good shots, there's a chance you're not really tapping into those fields as well as you should yeah. be. Um, be all in, all in, let it all hang out. And who cares what they think if you're shanking it or whatever you're doing? You're topping it. You're working on your technique, and then have a very definite end to your practice session where you maybe hit five shots, for instance, where you're you'll hit shapes so you're getting that feel back but you don't then try the, the problem is we all want to take that same thing that was then working that very strong feel onto the golf course but you are not the same man or woman as you were on the range as when you go to the golf course because you bring in the ego for instance and everything else feels tension what it means what will they think i want to do well today whereas you didn't care about any of that stuff on yeah. the range that changes everything so that feel is no longer the same feel so go to the course you will gently, the phrase I always remember from my fitness coach is gently, gently catchy monkey. <laughs> nudge it, nudge it, nudge it. Do the work, go play. Do the work, go play. And if you break it down like that, bite-sized chunks, you'll get where you want to go without all the drama that comes with trying to practice swings whilst you're trying to perform as well. Perfect. Good advice. Good. good advice. Okay, last question then. 
can you build a perfect golfer in terms of who you've played with? So best driver, best iron, best short game and putting. Yeah, so Rory McIlroy off the tee, without doubt. Tiger Woods with the iron play, uh, without doubt. I think statistically speaking, they probably speak for themselves, those two. Yeah, indeed. Um, short game's a toughie. No, it's not actually. No, it's not. Seve for the Seve with the because part of me always wants to say Phil, but it's like it, Phil isn't as talented as Seve. No, we're not even the same ballpark. Phil's a remarkable human being with, with a wedge in his hand, but Seve had such a disadvantage, but he could still do all that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, genius with such simplicity. And one of my wonderful memories as a child is being taught by Seve, uh, and Seve was the person who first showed me how you can open up the club face and stand dead square in a bunker. It's like what? What are you talking about? You can stand square to a bunk shot. No, Seve, you stand open, swing along the line of your feet. No, you don't. No, you don't. I told that to Mark Leishman. He watched one of the tea time tips I did uh, in a show. One of the show. No, it was on my Instagram. He watched it. He went, I never knew that. He just laid the handle down. The loft points back. I was like, I know. <laughs> it's like a guy at the time was like, I don't know, he was like number seven in the world or something or it's like it's amazing how we don't know these things but Seve was brilliant at that it opened up that club face lay that handle down low so you can stand square yeah. don't get all the glancing blow across the ball uh, anyway Seve um, leaps and bounds ahead of the rest around the green and on the greens um, Tiger yeah. in his oh is it going to be the same guy or you yeah. pick another one if you've got another. who would be the second be um, who would it be you know what? I'd probably go Poulter. Yeah. Just, he's got it a few just times. Just because I just know he will, I just know he's going to deliver for me. I'm yeah. on the oh, floor. no. <laughs> I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> what do you think? Me <laughs> today. Um, I just know he's going to, I just know he's going to hold it when it really matters. Yeah. And he's going to give it the bug eyes and I'll be really proud of his celebration as well. Yeah. We told him that the other day. We had a podcast the other day and we told him that someone, who was it who said Poulter was me? it? It was me when that uh, fitness girl asked me. Oh, okay, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was, he was yeah, loving that. Yeah. yeah, he was loving that. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, brilliant. Nick, so, yeah. Thank you so much for that. I mean, look, that we've run on a bit, so I can hear Di in the background shouting. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nick. I've got, I've got my list of chores all today this afternoon. Go. So. But no, thanks for your time, mate. It's really appreciate just getting an insight of, 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 you know, and you've been so honest about your story as well. I think it's great that you can share that with a lot of people, and I think a lot of people will get some great value from that as well. So appreciate Massively. that. Where's the best place for them to follow you? on social uh, at Nick Doherty five on um, Twitter and Instagram. I'm primarily on Instagram. That's all the tea time tips stuff is. And at the moment we're doing those Instagram lives. You were part of one as well. The other day, uh, Piers, you came on and did that little, the um, guest tip as well on there from the coach part. So doing a few of those sort of watch alongs. It's moved on to the main channel for sky sports golf now, but, um, but they, I'm still going to do a few more of those. Might one with Tommy Fleetwood coming up soon as well and stuff like Excellent. that. So some stuff. Brilliant. Yeah. Make sure you go and follow Nick on, uh, on those channels because he has got some really good stuff, insights on the golf course. And I think uh, what I love about your stuff on social, Nick, is it's just, it's real situations as well, which I really like because I think, you know, we can work on left wrist yeah. and hips. It's like, I'm in this situation. What do I do? So yeah, make sure you guys follow him on there because that, that's some, some real value in that as well. Thanks guys. Appreciate your time. Keep up the great work yourself. Thanks Nick. Appreciate that. Thanks Nick. Cheers. See you soon. Guys. Thank you. 
So there you have it, guys. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Massive thank you to Nick there also for being extremely honest. It's great to get an insight to what life is like on tours and obviously sharing some of the highs and lows. It's not always easy for the tour players, even though they've got a fantastic life and career. You know, they're still uh, human beings that have feelings. So really appreciate him being honest as well. Now, one thing I want to mention to you guys is that we've created an amazing community over at meandmygolf.com. We believe it is the best out there. We've got a platform that really helps you go deeper into your learning. We've created multiple coaching plans that help you get to your goals in a really strategic, organized way where we sort of walk you through and coach you through week by week, depending on what you want to work on. We've got an amazing Facebook community where all our members get together and share stories, share information, share tips, even post their golf swings in there asking for feedback. And me and Pierce are in there on a regular basis. So make sure you check it out. We do a free trial over there as well. Head over to meandmygolf.com. Check it out. We'd love to see you over there interacting in the community and also helping you get better. Thanks for listening, guys. And we will see you next time on the Me and My Golf podcast.